Yep. No. Okay. All right. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you to send your spirit into our hearts so that we can penetrate more deeply into the, um, in this case, um, your commandments and your law. We ask for Mary's intercession. Heal Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady's seat of wisdom, pray for us. Near the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Any questions on anything? So we're kind of running through moral theology in this section. And um, last, maybe I'll start with what we missed last week. So last week, oops. So we left off with um, virtue and vice last time. And we talked about different kinds of sins and venial and mortal sin. Um, and we said that there were three characters, I'm sorry, I'm beating this into the ground, but it's just a very handy thing. Three conditions for a mortal sin. It's got to be grave matter, it's got to be something that I know is grave, and it has to be fully deliberated. Right? And if it's one of those three is missing, then it's a venial sin. So for example, if it's not grave matter, if I have, um, let's say I've lied, but I haven't gravely injured somebody, by that lie, um, then that would be a venial sin. Or let's say I did gravely injure somebody, but I didn't intend to. I didn't deliberately do it. Obviously, it's not a mortal sin. Or if I, let's say I did something that was um, wrong, like I didn't go to Mass on Sunday, but I didn't know that I had an obligation to, then that wouldn't be a mortal sin either. All right? So there always have to be all three. All right? Grave matter. Um, Full knowledge and full deliberation. And this is going to be important because when we talk later, we're going to talk about going to confession. And those are the things that we have to bring to confession. Things that were mortal sins. It's good to bring our venial sins and we don't always have to determine whether that was a mortal sin or venial sin. Um, God knows, we don't have to know. Um, but we have to bring the mortal sins to confession. Right? And we have to repent of them. Okay? Sorry to keep on beating that. Um, and then um, the catechism has a little section, actually a long section, but I'm going to treat it briefly, sorry, just because we don't have enough time, on the social dimension. So up till now, we've been talking about um, morality basically in a personal way. But morality affects society. And so there are, um, we can speak of structures of sin in a society, and this is terrible, on the one hand, if you live in that society, but it also does lessen the guilt of individuals, right, if you're in a, a structure of sin. But it means that we have a greater um, duty to work together to overcome it. Um, and this comes up often with regard to cooperation with evil. So cooperation with evil is, I'm not directly the person who's, who wants to do evil. But let's suppose... Um, I know this happens all the time in the workplace or in politics. Um, suppose I don't want the evil that my colleagues are doing, but I'm afraid if I oppose them or if I um, 
don't go along with it, you know, I'll lose my job or I'll lose my, you know, um, I'll be defeated in the election, whatever. Um, and so I can be um, sometimes cooperating with somebody else's evil, and that can be a, also a grave sin, right, depending on the case. And so the, um, the general principle is this. We can never um, cooperate directly with somebody's evil, um, but sometimes we, have, we can't avoid indirectly cooperating. What does that mean? So directly is when I will the evil myself, or if I'm doing something essential to perpetrate it. So an example of this would be um, I'm in a robber, a gang of robbers, and one person actually steals the money, but the, the lookout, the planner, right? They're, they've cooperated with evil, and they're, um, they're responsible for it, right? Even though they didn't do it themselves, right? Somebody who leads, say, a mob to do something, the person who leads the mob is more responsible, even though he could say, I didn't do anything. Right? So that's cooperation with evil. Sometimes we have to cooperate. Um, um, sometimes it's hard not to cooperate in an indirect way. And that depends on the circumstances. I'm going to leave this, I think. Um, any, anybody want to raise a question about? So the principle would be this. Um, sometimes I can't avoid. Um, so for example, I invest in the stock market. And um, maybe the company I invest in is a good company, but does something that's morally wrong. And if I know about that, I could choose to invest in another company rather than that one. Right? And so that'd be an example of immaterial cooperation with evil. And we want to try and reduce that, but it, it depends on the circumstances. Um, let me go back to the directly cooperating. That's probably the more important thing. Um, in a lot of countries in the world, um, it's hard to do business without paying a bribe sometimes, depending on what kind of, um, um, and that would be a kind of cooperation in evil. Right? And so one should um, always avoid direct cooperation in evil. Questions? But going back to the stock market question, it is good to seek to um, get an um, investment fund or something that um, respects, um, say, Catholic values or respects um, moral standards. Okay. Okay. Principle of sub sorry, it's a fancy word here. Subsidiarity, and um, it comes from the Latin word for aid. And it's a question of how should I aid other people? So there are two principles here, um, subsidiarity and solidarity. Let me start with the other one. So solidarity is the principle that I can't just say, well, um, in the Bible, take Cain and Abel. Right? So God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? Cain had killed him. And so, but he answers, I'm just trying to deceive God, am I my brother's keeper? And what, so he's asking that question to God. What's the right answer there? In some way, yes, right? We are all our brother's keeper, right? Again, indifferent, those who are directly dependent on us much more than others, right? And according to... Um, our circumstances. 
But we, solidarity is the idea that somebody else in need, I can't just say that's not my problem. Sometimes I might not be able to do anything about it, right? But sometimes I may have to do something about it, right? And Jesus uses this as the criterion of judgment in Matthew chapter 25. He says, and those who, we saw this earlier when we looked at the last things, right? He says, when I was hungry, you fed me, right? And those are the ones who go to heaven. And those who um, are on the other side, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me, etc. right? But so that would be solidarity. We stand together, and we need to care for the common good. But it's not so easy always to know how to best do that. So sometimes subsidiarity is a principle that helps um, When we aid others, we don't want to take away their initiative. That would be the, the basic idea there. So a higher order would be, let's say, um, the federal government with regard to um, people who are poor in a, in a given country. All right? So community of a higher order, federal government, shouldn't um, take away all my freedom if they're going to give me a handout, or shouldn't take away my ability to um, uh, determine, let's say, a better example would be education. It's good that the government and public schools aid families in educating their children, right? But whose duty is it most importantly, the duty to educate? Parents, parents not the federal government. Does everybody see that? Right? Because the parents brought the children into the world. And so they have the duty, um, coming from the very parent child relationship to educate their children. It's good that the community help, right? Because there might be many people who aren't able to you know, homeschool and teach their kids. And so that's why we have public schools, right? But a public school shouldn't take away from the parents all determination about how their children should be educated. Right? And the same thing goes even in religious education, right? It's good that the parish give you know, um, religious instruction for kids. But the ultimate educators for children's faith, it's got to be the parents. Right, so that's the principle of subsidiarity is, yes, higher orders should aid when the lower, say the family, can't do it by themselves. But they shouldn't aid in such a way that they deprive the lower order of its own initiative. Rather, the higher should be supporting the initiative of the, the more immediate, say, the family. Right? And the same thing would go for the local community, for the state, for the government, or the parish, the diocese, the universal church. Right? In other words, the idea is this, that aid is best given by people who are closest to you. Because you're accountable in that way, and you're not just an anonymous number. Mm -hmm. So talk to the parish priest before you write the bishop. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that too. In other words, so it goes both ways. In the way of aiding, from the, it shouldn't immediately, in other words, you don't want a society like the Soviet Union in which it was just the state and the individual, and everything in between was, was eliminated. Um, you want a society with lots of levels. And um, the upper level doesn't immediately go to the lower, but through all these intermediates. And likewise, one should, if one is not, um, if one is having difficulty, one should go to one's pastor before one goes to one's bishop, and one, it doesn't make sense to directly write Pope Francis or, or President Biden. All right? Okay.
um, government authority. So government has authority, and ultimately the authority comes from God. Now that might sound strange to us in a democracy because we say it comes from the people. And both are true though in two different ways. What comes from the people in a democracy is determining who our representatives are, right? That's why we elect them, great thing. But God gives the authority in this sense that he's made us in a certain way. He's made us social such that we don't live well each on our own in an anarchy. Right? In other words, we as social beings need to live in a society with legitimate authority, and that comes from our nature, and in that sense, authority comes from God. Right? And we should obey it thinking that we're obeying God. All right? So a government has a legitimate authority, but not everything that a government orders is in fact legitimate authority. Right? It's a le legitimate authority if it's used for the purpose that God gives that authority, and that is for the common good of society. So if a, a particular government does everything for the private good of the dictator, right, that would not be a legitimate authority. And um, we wouldn't, if um, a law is made that goes against God's law, Right? That would, again, God being the higher legislator, um, he always has to be obeyed over um, the dictator or, or the president. All right? So it, a rule of law is crucial for every society. A rule of law is that in which all the players, individuals and, and institutions, respect this authority that comes from above. And when the rule of law gets undermined in society, right, that's among the greatest of tragedies. So an unjust law that would command me to do evil, right, that is not a real law. But I shouldn't be too hasty to, to declare that. And so an example of that would be, I think that this, um, my taxes are too high and that that's unjust and so I'm not going to pay them. And that's not up to me simply to determine. Right? Okay, what is, so I mentioned this term, the common good. This is really important. The, in every society, um, one should always be aiming, so the political leaders, we, when we elect our, um, the candidates to represent us, we want them to work for the common good of society. And the common good is a good that is good for everyone because it's a good for the whole and not for, just for a part. And so that's the, and so what does that mean? It's going to be first and foremost, respect for the rights of persons, persons and families and institutions. So the common good is achieved and safeguarded when the rights of every member of society is respected. And so that's the first thing. And then the development of the goods of a society. Right? So the common good would want the development of spiritual and temporal goods in that order, right? So spiritual goods would be having, you know, um, educational institutions that pursue truth and culture and morality, the church, etc. Temporal goods would be things like the economy. We tend to reverse this, right? We think the common good is first and foremost the economy and then all these other things. But it should be the other way around. But nevertheless, both of them are parts of the common good. And then peace and security of all. 
right? So when we, um, so an election year, when we vote, that's what we should be thinking about. Which candidate, which party, which um, policy best serves the common good? Questions on that? And so, um, to promote the common good is really the same as to promote social justice. It's just another term. We use it more commonly today, social justice. Um, and that would be the same that we just said. Society ensures social justice when it respects the dignity and rights of the person, the dignity and rights of family, we could put in there, um, when it um, secures the rule of law, and provides the conditions that allow associations and individuals to obtain what is their due. What does that mean? So it observes the principle of subsidiarity, right? And that allows, say, families to work. Um, in associations would be something like the church, parish, um, so the different churches and religious bodies in a society. Um, Questions on that? There's tons more to say about this, but. So I mentioned before solidarity. I should have put this earlier. And so it's coming from brotherhood. It's the fact that we're ultimately, we all share in humanity. And, and therefore, we, and it's the foundation for seeking the common good. And so solidarity is sharing material goods, but also, more importantly, sharing spiritual goods. Right? So sharing our faith, even evangelization, is a key part of solidarity. Right? That I don't keep my faith simply to myself, right? but I want to pass it on. Because that's really the most important way that we can help society as a whole, Christians, is passing on that Christian faith. We talked about this earlier, but the catechism gives it here. Um, justification um, is how we pass into um, what makes us just before God is receiving his grace and having our sins forgiven. And so sanctifying grace is what um, puts us in a right relationship with God, and that's going to be the foundation that will help me to be in a right relation with uh, my brother and sister. Questions about, we did this about a month ago. So we speak of three different kinds of graces. And so sanctifying grace is that which puts me in right relationship with God. And it's something we have um, in a stable way, right? So um, sleeping last night, I was still in a state of grace. Right? In other words, it's whether we're awake or asleep. We can lose it, though. The way we lose it is mortal sin. The way we win it back is repentance and um, it, the sacrament of baptism, if I haven't yet been baptized, and confession or desire for those sacraments 
coupled with repentance. Right? So that's how we get, um, um, get sanctifying grace. Um, in addition to sanctifying grace, there are actual graces that come to us um, in the here and now. And we talked a little about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I overburdened you last time. And um, that would involve actual grace, a grace given in the here and now to help me to see what God wants me to do. So, for example, in today's first reading at Mass, it was um, Samuel, right? So, um, God is calling Samuel. And Samuel asked, Lord, here I am, right? What, um, what do you want? Actual grace would be God knocking like that on Samuel, right? And Samuel's response is, speak, right? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so God doesn't speak directly with words like I'm speaking now, but he enables us to understand, sometimes with more clarity, usually with less clarity, um, what, he's, what he wills for us. Right? And that's an actual grace. Something, it's in the here and now, that leads me to see something, maybe to have my conscience um, sharpened, to see something I need to change in my life. And it could be, um, so that it's partly seeing something, but it's even more importantly giving me the strength to want to do it. In other words, attracting my will. And then the last kind here are charisms. Charisms are special gifts that each one has according to the different things that God calls us to. So for example, um, when God called Samuel, he was actually calling Samuel to become a prophet. So that was a particular charism. And most people don't get that kind of call that Samuel got to be the, you know, God's prophet in Israel. It, I'll talk about this maybe a little later. All of us in some way are called to be prophets simply by professing the Catholic faith and being um, living it out in society. That's a prophetic witness that all the members of the church have, right? But it's not an extraordinary charism. That would be charism but in that case, an ordinary, that I live in my, um, where I am. Okay. And then the last thing is, God calls us all to holiness. Right? Nobody, so not everyone gets the charism of Samuel, right, to be a prophet in Israel, but everyone is called to be a prophet, um, and that means to live, seek holiness in ordinary life. Right? And how should I put this? And we should, this is actually our most important calling of every human being, um, is to seek um, to do God's will and have intimacy or union with him which, and to live the virtue of charity. Um, and that's what makes up holiness. Right? It's not something extraordinary. Well, in some ways it's extraordinary because it's sharing God's life but it's lived in the most ordinary situations in which all of us find ourselves. In other words, it's not something for others, but it's something, first and foremost, for myself and yourself. Can you go back to that? Yeah. Can you give some like, other instances for actual graces? And what, what are, okay, so actual graces, we, don't, we can't give to ourselves. We can ask for them, Lord, show me what to do, right? Suppose I'm having, I find myself in a difficult situation, and I don't know what the right path is, right? So I can, what we're called to do is to pray. 
The actual grace will be helping me to see what he actually wants me to do and giving me the strength to embrace it. Right? Because it might be, we were talking about cooperation and evil. It might be that, let's say I find myself in a difficult situation, I'm being brought into cooperating in some evil. Right? And what I need to see is that, no, I have to um, ex exercise my spine and say no. Right? So an actual grace would be showing me that and giving me the strength to do it. And a charism is, everyone has, is called, um, let me take another, um, Paul, when he speaks about the church, he speaks about it as the mystical body of Christ. And in the body, there are lots of different organs. Right? There's the kneecap and the toe and, and the arm or whatever. And each of us are like organs in this body. And that's our charism. I might be a teacher. I might be a mother, whatever it may be. And um, so our charism is a particular way of exercising um, our faith. And that's, going, that's how we work out our holiness. Right? And sometimes people can um, get confused in the sense that they think that in order to be holy, I have to, I don't know, leave my, my world and my current circumstances and enter a convent or, or something like that or become a priest. So this, at this teaching of the seminary, sometimes seminarians enter for the wrong reason because they think that the only way they can be holy is by becoming a priest. And that, that's great if God's actually calling you for that. Um, but if he's calling you for something else, then you don't want to do that, right? You want to do what he's calling you to. All right? So, for example, most people are called to marriage. So that, too, is a charism. Right? It's a special calling and grace that is glorious. Okay. All right, I'm going to go on to... Now, so this catechism now moves into um, the Ten Commandments. Um, and so we spoke about this a few sessions ago. We tend to think of Christian morality too much as simply thou shalt not. But actually the commandments begin with um, the positive, right? And that's the first commandment. And all of the commandments are a positive in this sense. They're a map. The commandments serve as a map to get to happiness. So a good way to introduce them is what the Catechism does here um, by quoting um, Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. So a, a rich young man comes up to Jesus and asks him, Lord, or teacher, what, um, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, if you want to enter into life, Keep the commandments. All right? So that's the first thing he says. And so then the rich young man says, well, which commandments? And Jesus lists the, um, from the Ten Commandments, he actually lists the seven regarding our neighbor. Um, and then the rich young man said, well, Lord, I've done these from my youth. Um, and the Lord looked at him with love. Um, but he kept on asking, what more do I have to do? And Jesus said, um, if you want to be perfect, um, take your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. All right, that particular thing, take your possessions, give them to the poor, that we could say would be a particular charism given to that man. Right? Some people are called to give the, what they own to the poor. 
But most people aren't because I have to take care of my family, right? I can't simply, if I have children, I can't simply go take my bank account and liquidate it and give it all away, right? Because that would be gravely imprudent towards others that I have to provide for, right? So that we should take as something special given to the rich young man. And what happened? Anybody? He went away sad because he had lots of possessions and he didn't find the strength or attraction to give them away. And so, yes, it doesn't, the scripture doesn't tell us that he went to hell. Right? Because that's not actually a mortal sin, to not give your possessions to the poor. Right? There's no commandment, um, thou must give all thy possessions to the poor. Um, but if the Lord gives you a charism and a call, what should you do? Lord, um, your servant is listening. All right? But in any case, and the more important thing is what Jesus says at the end, and that is, come and follow me. That he says to everyone. Right? So what he says to everyone is, follow the commandments and come and follow me in the particular way in which I'm calling you. Okay? So the commandments are precisely the way to life. So there are two... I'm sorry to start with this, but... Um, I want to make this seem legalistic, but there are two different kinds of laws. Um, there's a law written on the heart, and we often call that natural law. We say written on the heart because written on everyone's heart. So the Ten Commandments are a summary of the natural law written on the human heart. And it, therefore, it applies to everyone. But they're also, in every society, and that's true in every society as well, um, but in every society, there are particular laws that can change and are given um, according to that society. So an example would be a natural law with regard to traffic would be drive carefully. Right? But a, a particular society can say that means um, don't go more than 60 miles an hour on this road. Right? So that would be a more particular civil law. Right? So that a civil law would be distinct from the natural law. Natural law applies to everyone. The civil law applies if that's the speed limit on this road. Right? The church also has something like civil law. And it's church law. Um, and so there are certain things that are required um, from us according to church law that aren't strictly natural law. And one example is to go to Mass on Sunday. So we're going to look at the third commandment is about um, um, <clears throat> observing the Sabbath. Right? And that was, that's true for everyone. But for Catholics, what that means is, there's a church law, to go to Mass on Sunday and Holy Days of Obligation. If the church didn't require it, it wouldn't be a grave sin not to do it. But I'd have to do some way of observing the Sabbath. But the church tells us this is a requirement, all right? And sometimes it can be kind of, uh, seems strange. So here's an example. Um, what are the holy days of, so Sundays and holy days of obligation? Um, holy days of obligation include Christmas. Um, and that never gets canceled. So Christmas fell on a Monday. It was still a holy day of obligation. So you had to go to Mass on Sunday the 24th, and on Monday the 25th this past year. All right? Um, 
Other um, holy days, like um, January 1st, is Mary, Mother of God. That's usually a holy day of obligation, but this year it fell on Monday, so it's not. Yeah, so you didn't have to go twice in a row. Uh, that's something, clearly, that's something that the church can change, right? But whatever the church requires at the moment is what we should do, right? Because it's legitimate authority. Um, and then to confess our sins, um, the church requires us to go once a year. So this is after you get, not yet, but after you get baptized and enter into the church, once a year to confess my sins, um, usually during Lent, um, and to receive also the Eucharist at least once during the year, usually during Easter. Now, I think it would be really foolish to only receive the Eucharist once a year and to only go to confession once a year. But that's all the church requires, right? I think a good practice, what I would recommend, is um, going receiving communion every Sunday if you can, and, um, and if you can receive it more often, fantastic. And to go to confession, say, something like once a month. But we'll talk about that when we look at that sacrament. But that's just my recommendation. Church doesn't require it. And then fourth, to abstain from eating meat and to observe the days of fasting established by the church, which are very few, right, compared to what it used to be in the past. And it is um, Fridays during Lent. And every Friday, people often um, miss this, every Friday to, um, we can abstain from meat, um, and if we don't abstain from meat, to offer something else. Right? So, it has to be abstaining from meat during the Fridays of Lent, and all through the year, the other Fridays, um, that would be a good practice, or something equivalent like that. Right? And again, somebody might say, well, this just seems, I don't know. So you can eat salmon and you know, the lobster or whatever, but you can't eat you know, um, a hamburger? Yeah. And why? Just, it's something that we do together to remember that Christ died for us on Good Friday. And then the fifth, to provide for the material needs of the church, each according to his own ability. So here, the church is different than, say, um, the law of Moses. Law of Moses implied gave a number, 10%, right, tithing. So you had to give 10% of your goods to, um, um, to the priests. But the church simply says to provide for the church according to your judgment of your ability to do so. And we do that supporting our parish and our diocese and any other you know, charitable um, um, organizations. Questions on that? So those are the five precepts of the church. Ah, one thing, so the fasting, um, to abstain from meat on those, um, um, especially the, the Fridays of Lent, and to fast um, twice a year on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. We will remind you of this later. Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent. It's coming up in about a month. I think it's February 14th. And, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, Valentine's Day. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah. So on Ash Wednesday, um, the requirement is to fast. And what does that mean? That means to have one major, only one major meal. So it's not a total fast. In, in Judaism, um, they, they have a, the Day of Atonement is a 24-hour total fast. All right. Ash Wednesday is not like that. 
it means have one regular meal and then the other meals be like half meals. Um, so it's, it's not actually that difficult. And if you're over 65 and if you're ill, you're exempt. Right? So if anyone that would be harmful for, you're exempt from it. Um, okay? Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Sorry. Okay. All right, so those are the precepts of the church. Question or anything? That, so that number five, to support the church, tithing is a good, um, in other words, the idea of the 10% is, is a good rule of thumb, but it's left to us to determine that. And that can vary according to our circumstances. Okay. Well, so let's look now at the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are summed up in the double commandment. So the double commandment sums up the whole law, right? And it's the double commandment of love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And so Jesus asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he answers in this way. And it's interesting, in, in a different gospel, um, Jesus throws the question to the person who asked, the scribe, and the scribe answers in the same way. So it shows that what Jesus says here and what Judaism teaches is the same. Right? So the double commandment of love sums up the law. So the Ten Commandments, we can reduce them all to the, the double commandment. Decalogue is just a synonym for the Ten Commandments, right? the Ten Words. And these are given in two places in the Old Testament, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. So two different listings, but it's the same Ten Commandments, just two different ways they're said. And so it's divided. It makes, if God is going to give us commandments, we should expect that um, he's going to do it in a good order. In some way, somebody might object, well, did God even need to reveal the Ten Commandments? Because we've said it's written on the heart, and every society recognizes the Ten Commandments, but maybe not in that same form that they're given in Scripture. Um, but since God revealed them, it makes sense that he would reveal them in, a, um, in an ordered way. So we can divide the Ten Commandments into the first three, and the next seven. And there's actually, a, in, in scripture, um, it speaks of Moses receiving the tablets on two tablets. Right? And so the two tablets, very often, we could say the first tablet would be the commandments about God, and the second tablet about our neighbor. In other words, our duties to God and our duties to one another. Right, so the first three commandments, duties to God, and then four through ten to our neighbor. A slight um, um, numbering problem. Catholics number the Ten Commandments differently from Protestants and Jews. And so, so you might have learned the Ten Commandments um, in the uh, different numbering. And that would be, we, so um, the first three commandments is what we're going to look at today. Um, would be with regard to God. And the first one, to love him, to, to have only one God, to serve God alone. 
against, so it's against idolatry, and it's basically the commandment to love God above all things. Second commandment, anybody? Not to take his name in vain, in other words, to honor him. Third commandment, to observe this Sabbath. Right? So those are the three that we're going to look at. Protestants very often will put in, that not have graven images as... Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting mm -hmm. a question from someone who's not okay. Um, as far as keep, you're going to cover keeping the Sabbath yeah. and, and Sunday yeah. later, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, that's all. Just, okay. th that'll be like in the next class. Or, you know, oh, no, no, we'll do it today. Ah, okay, great. Okay, cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there more to that second commandment than just like. Yeah, we'll get to it in just a second. But it, yeah. Yeah. But still, we won't give it the same importance as others. Um, so before getting into the individual ones, um, is it important? And so obviously, yes, right? The Ten Commandments are give us grave matter in general. But again, we'll look at, at, at that with each one in particular. Um, in other words, giving us our fundamental duties to God and neighbor. Is it possible to keep them? And we've got to say yes. And that's because God wouldn't require something of us without giving us the strength to observe it. I may not observe it perfectly. That's another matter. So is it possible to keep the Decalogue without any venial sin at all? Probably no. But is it possible to keep it without mortal sin? Certainly, we have to say yes. And so this would be, again, a difference with typical Protestant understanding. Very often, especially Luther, but I think pretty much in the Reformed tradition as well, God gave the law simply to convict us as sinners. In other words, it's really impossible to keep it. But that's not what Jesus said to the rich young man, right? He asked him, um, follow the commandments. And the rich young man said, I have followed them. And Jesus loved him for that, right? So it is possible, and that that's scriptural, right? In other words, they're not simply... Um, the commandments aren't simply to show us that we're all terrible, damnable sinners, but it's to show us where we need to repent. Right? It's true, though, I can't do it by myself. So if I think I'm going to keep the commandments um, and I can do it by my own strength, that I cannot, and God will probably allow me to um, experience that. But with his grace and the sacraments, yes. All right, so let's look at the first one. What is implied in the first commandment? So I am the Lord your God. And that means that, um, so it's above all um, the three theological virtues that we looked at last class. Right, what are the theological virtues? Anybody? Faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and charity. Right, the th they're the three virtues whose object is God. So faith it's directed to God to believe his word, hope to put my desires in him and not simply in the world, and love to, to love him above all things and even above myself. Now, let's love myself for him. Right, so those are the three things that the first commandment requires. So you can see from this, the first commandment is the most important commandment, right? By far. And that makes sense because it's the first one. Right? In other words, these are in a right order. 
God has given us the commandments to show where we need to start and end, as it were. So it's commanding us faith, hope, and charity. So faith would be, it's commanding us to believe in him and to reject what's contrary to the faith. Um, and that would be to reject doubt. So it can happen that I don't know, um, some thought comes into my mind um, that's a, um, a question with regard to what the church teaches. That's not a grave sin. But if I um, a deliberate doubt would be to say, well, I really don't know. That would be contrary to the virtue of faith, right? Because if faith teaches, let's take a simple example. Um, if faith teaches that there's a God, it would be um, contrary to the virtue of faith to say, I don't really know if there's a God. Maybe we're all simply the product of you know, chaos and accident. That would be something that if I have faith, I would want to say, no, I'm sorry, that's not right. Um, in other words, you take it out of your mind. So having that thought isn't a sin. It might be a temptation. But to give into it in such a way as to deliberately doubt, that would be the sin. Does that make sense? And similarly for unbelief, heresy is when I believe most of what the church teaches, but I don't believe this particular thing. So an example would be, um, at the Reformation. I believe in what the church teaches, but I don't believe, let's say, in, that the Eucharist, um, that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. That's, that would be a heresy. Or I don't believe that confirmation is a sacrament, or holy orders is a sacrament. Right, so something that the church teaches as a dogma, so we talked about this about a month ago, um, if the church teaches something as a dogma of faith, as something revealed by God, um, and I disbelieve it, that's a heresy. Right? And so that would be a grave sin against the first commandment. It's not going to be a sin, though, for somebody before they come to faith. Right? In other words, if somebody is in investigating, and if you're here in RCA because you're um, coming to faith, Right? It'll start, it only becomes a, a grave sin when you've given the light to already see that and embrace it. And then you reject that light. Question? It seems like, uh, going back to the thing mm -hmm. just before that, about um, if you were to have a doubt and you were to kind of uh, harbor that thought, mm -hmm. for that to be a sin, it's almost like saying, stop looking at this objectively. Just believe. Like, don't... Don't scrutinize this. Like, ah, okay. Act like you believe it. So that's like a hard pill to swallow. Like, yeah. No, you can't actually do it, right? It wouldn't be possible. Um, what I mean there is, if I've come to... So what would be an example? Um, let's go back to the example you used. Like, there, mm -hmm. there is a God. I mean, you come to this crossroads. Yeah. You've been a Christian for so long, and you're thinking, mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a God anymore. You know what I mean? Um, and so you kind of look at it objectively, and you start... Um, reading material from both sides so that you can get uh, yeah. an objective opinion? I wouldn't recommend, if I were in that situation, sure. I would not recommend you to read from both sides. Simply because, I mean, there are, that would, it might be, I mean, if God is trying to bring you to himself and Satan is trying to keep you away, would it be good advice? Read from both sides. Listen to God and listen to Satan. No. Right? In other words, I would say, go to the good source. Right? So in a person who's having some 
crisis of faith, what should they do? Not equally invest, stop, very often that crisis of faith comes because I have read something um, bad that's raised questions that I wasn't able to answer. So what should I do? I should look for a wise person, a spiritual counselor, who can help me with those doubts. Doing that obviously would not be a grave sin. That would be precisely the virtuous action because I'm seeking to get away from that deliberate doubt. Right? So crises of faith happen, and that's a temptation, not a sin. It's what I do in that crisis that makes it my response um, something that I would have to bring to confession that could separate me from God or not. Right? And that's going to be precisely seeking the best way to overcome it, not to increase it. That's a great question, yeah, but keep on going with it. Yeah, so it seems like unbiased, though. Like, if I were to, like, faith is biased. In good conscience, that's right. Yeah, like you are pursuing the truth, it will reveal itself. It will, itself. and it may... I'm not going to listen to anyone else's opinion, except for these people who I know already believe one, uh, you know, one side of that argument. I, you want to what? Yeah, but it, there's a hidden fallacy in the way you've set it up. Because it, it might seem, I need to be unbiased in, in getting opinions. But the fact is, it should be the other way around. Take, if you were in ancient Israel, who would you go to see if you wanted to get faith? Wouldn't you go to the prophet Samuel, for example? Or, you know, to Moses? Or to Jesus? Right? So imagine somebody, let's, let's put ourselves in Jerusalem in the year 33. Right? And we didn't, we're a little bit confused, and maybe we're having a crisis of faith like Judas because we thought Jesus was going to liberate Israel, and it seems like that's not his plan. Who should I tell? Should I do an un- I'm going to go to Caiaphas, and I'm going to talk to him for a while, and then I'll maybe talk to. That would be foolish. I should talk to Jesus. But you're assuming that you already have faith in Jesus. That's right, but that's this situation, right? We, so we said it's different. If somebody you know, is coming from atheism, they're going to have to make their way more slowly. But once you've come to faith, you can't simply pretend you're now an unbiased person, who a neutral, because baptism is, Jesus is stamped on you. You're claimed, and you've been committed. All right, not all of you are baptized yet, but those of you who are, have been baptized have been claimed and have claimed him. And so you need to go to him first, and not some unbiased thing, I'm going to talk to Satan, and I'll talk to Jesus the same. All right, so this is really important in practice. And I'll say this entire dialogue completely underlines the importance of faith and, and hope as, like the, uh, as the cardinal virtues. Because if I were to put myself in the middle of or, you know, be in some situation, um, what should I say, interpreting uh, theories or, you know, just mm-hmm. painting a whole bunch of things outside of what the church and mm-hmm. outside of what's in the sacred scripture, you can lose your way. You have to ah. immerse yourself in faith. Um, I may not know. It may not be to my mortal, my human understanding because the divine is far, by far more able to, uh, what should I say? Mm-hmm. We, we can't sense it. It's, it. it's not of our, of our being. Have to put faith in the Holy Spirit and allow it to work in you. Yeah, and that means 
in, in the Holy Spirit, but it also, here's the hard part. Somebody might say, all right, I can put faith in the Holy Spirit. But it, but it also means in the church. And that's going to be the harder part, right, I think. But that's part of faith. Faith doesn't simply come down. I mean, we looked at this at the beginning. Faith doesn't come down to us as God speaking to me personally in my God corner alone. Faith comes to all of us through the church. I mean, that's why there's a class here. And that's why I'm not just making this up, but I'm using a book, the catechism that the church gives us, and dogmas that the church has pronounced, and scripture that was received by the church. Right? So that's the difficult part. But it's still, yeah, so when we have a doubt of, about faith, what should we do? Go to the church. And what does that mean in particular? Seek somebody wise um, who lives the faith. And it doesn't have to be you know, a doctor of theology, because the, very often it's the people who love more who are the best ones to dispel our doubts. All right? Yeah, no, fantastic question. So, um, yes, but there can be catastrophic consequences when I'm having a crisis of faith, how I deal with it, who I go to, and how I seek to resolve it, and if I really try to do this unbiased, reading the bad as well as the good. Great, great. Yeah, and so that's precisely, I think, what's contained in the first commandment. That's a first commandment question. And that's because very often I think people, when they look at, when we, this is, to go through the Ten Commandments is to help us examine our conscience. How am I doing before God? Right? And that's really the kind of thing that concretely I need to examine. Do I really trust Jesus? And if I don't, and I'm just treating him as one source among others, then is that, does that go together with um, what God's actually calling me to? And, and the answer would be no. Fantastic. Again, it can depend on the situation, right? But, like, when some, because I know people have dealt with what you just said, like, very similar. So, there's, like, I want to figure things out, but if you're doubting, you're not in a biased spot. You're, so by reading literature that makes you doubt more, you're feeding the doubt. That's not, now, trying to figure things out is not a bad thing, but it's only that, like, the idea that somehow I'm going to put myself in a neutral space, like, maybe wait a little until you're kind of in a better headspace if you're even going to try to sort certain things out. Yeah, sorting out is good, right? I mean, so we said, wanting to sort things out is precisely what the first commandment calls us for. It's the, um, the idea that there's a neutral space is the problem. There isn't actually a neutral space. Um, Satan's got his agenda. I mean, it's, I mean, it's an agenda um, in the full sense of the word. Everybody's yeah. starting from somewhere. Yeah, and it's ultimately, Satan and God are both fighting for our souls. And one of them loves us, and the other hates us. Obviously, I've oversimplified. But, um, but let's take a, another example there. Let's suppose I'm wrestling with not, you know, does God exist, but is Jesus really present in the Eucharist? And in a question like that, I can't say, well, yes, because I've experienced him, or no, because I haven't experienced him. I don't experience anything when I receive communion, therefore... Um, the answer has got to be what the apostles said to Jesus, right? So remember the case? So I'll explain this later. It's John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus gave a really tough teaching to his disciples who were there. And it was that if you want to be saved, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you were there, I suppose you've never heard this before, what would you think? 
This sounds crazy, right? This is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And many of his disciples, probably most of those who were following him, left. So Jesus then turned to the twelve, and he asked them, are you going to leave too? And what did, anybody know what? what did, where, yeah, to whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's how we answer in a crisis of faith. Because that was a crisis of faith for Peter too. He did, do you think Peter understood what Jesus was saying? No way. No more than the others. But he knew that there's no unbiased, neutral space, right? And there would be no advantage in leaving, right? Jesus is going to explain this more in his good time. All right, so in other words, in a Christ of faith, what should you do? Don't leave. But stick it out with the master and ask him to reveal it through other people usually, right? That's the normal way, and through prayer. Generally, this is a great advice. Don't change course in a crisis and in darkness. This is Satan 101. Satan is not stupid. He is smart, and he exists, right? He's a fallen angel, and fallen angels are smarter than human beings. But what's interesting is Satan doesn't have to use fancy tactics most of the time, because this one usually works. He gives you a little crisis in life, and in the crisis, he wants you to give up on your faith. And the simple, the most important rule of discernment in the spiritual life is in a time of darkness, what should you do? What Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. Okay? Great. Okay, so faith believes in God and rejects things opposed to it. Um, another, so what should we do in a case like that? Seek advice, read things. So the catechism would be a, a great place to go. Right? So again, that's seeking to sort it out, going to the catechism. Schism. Schism would be, so um, heresy is denying the faith. Schism would be cutting the body of Christ. So different Protestant denominations that are separated from the Catholic Church, which happened the Reformation, and it, that, those came about because of heresy. But even if there wasn't a heresy, that would still be a grave thing because it would be dividing oneself from the whole church. And that is against God's will. Jesus said that they may be, his last prayer in John 17, that they may be one, right? As you, I and thou, Father, are one. So Jesus' last wish is for us to be one body. And therefore, to enter into a schism is gravely contrary to the first commandment. Questions on that? Now, most people, so are you just saying, did I just say that all Protestants are in mortal sin because of this? Not necessarily, because there are three conditions, grave matter, full knowledge, and deliberate consent, right? So most Protestants are Protestants because they were raised Protestants. But if I'm Martin Luther and I'm breaking away from the church, then that's a grave sin that I have, it seems, would know and be um, deliberately consenting to, right? So it makes a big difference if it's the founder of a schism or somebody who grows up in it um, through no fault of their own. Okay, hope. So the first commandment commands us to hope in him and not to despair 
or presume. I think we talked about this before when we looked at faith, hope, and charity. We said that one can sin against um, hope in two opposite ways. Despairing, and so but let's talk about the despair first. So despair would be uh, Satan 102, or maybe 101. It's, it's a, one of his, together with the last one, um, it's the idea that I've done something too terrible to be forgiven. There is no thing too terrible to be forgiven. Right? Anything that we repent of, God forgives. But Satan tries to get us with that to despair of um, God's forgiveness. Right? And that's, in fact, was Judas's undoing. Right? This was too terrible. But if he had repented of it, he would have been forgiven. And presumption is um, thinking that I'll be saved no matter what, even though I live in mortal sin and don't seek to avoid it. I don't have to worry. So our society, it's interesting, is it both despairing and presumptuous at the same time in different ways. Right? We tend to think that um, I'm okay and you're okay no matter what, and we tend also to have a lot of despair about even if there is heaven. Questions on hope? Charity, um, so the most important um, of all the um, virtues is charity. And so that's to love God above all things. And um, so charity with regard to God, and that's what we're speaking here. And the other commandments will be charity with regard to our neighbor. And so to love God above all things means that I'm ordering myself to him, not the other way around. So it can happen that um, I think, um, well, I'm going to do religion because um, I want religion to serve me. But it's got to be ordering myself and my whole life and everyone that I love, my family, my country, to God. Right? That's what it means to put him first. Right? I'm not first. And ultimately, everyone has that decision. And that's what determines heaven and hell. Do I put God first? Or do I put me first? So to love God above all things, and therefore to repudiate what's contrary to that. And that would be, so the Catechism gives different things here. So indifference. Indifference would be basically, all right, I'm going to go to, maybe I'll go to church, but it just doesn't make a difference. Right? I'll, I might do the, um, the outward um, requirements, but I don't really care. Right? That's obviously contrary to charity. It's got to be, it ought to be what I most care about. Right? It doesn't mean I spend my whole time doing religion. and I have to spend most of my time doing my job and my family duties and so forth. But all of them ordered to God. All right? And indifference. And yeah, and so we, there's tons of religious indifferentism in our society. The idea, look, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what faith you have. It doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Protestant or, or Buddhist. Um, um, so that would be a kind of indifference. Does that make sense? That's not to say that um, everybody's going to be damned who hasn't found it yet, right? For the reasons we said, because it's not so easy to find. But I can't be... Um, it's one thing if I'm seeking and I haven't yet found, and it's another thing if I don't care. Right? If I don't care, that's a bad place. Ingratitude. 
So ingratitude, again, it goes together with the indifference, right? They're inseparable. If I don't care, that means I'm, I don't care about the one whom I've received everything, right? Each one of us right now is receiving our whole being from God. And if he were to stop giving it, we would be nothing. And all of those who we love, and every good, right, comes from God. And so gratitude is actually, it's impossible to be sufficiently grateful to God because it's everything. Lukewarmness is like indifference. So lukewarmness is, all right, yeah, again, I'm going to go to church, but I just don't get excited about it. It's not the top of my, right, of my, uh, what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, and that can be, um, if that's just simply physiological because I'm sick, obviously that's not sinful. But if it's a constant attitude of my soul, that's a problem. Right? And that's the, really the same as the next thing, sloth or spiritual indolence. So sloth, um, when we speak about it here in these terms, isn't just, you know, I'm too lazy to sweep my room or something. It's being lazy with regard to cultivating a relationship with God. Right? That would be against charity. So just as a married person has to um, put that first, um, cultivating a relation with my spouse and every parent with their children, right? Um, same here, right? So I have to put first, cultivate my, and that means make a time for prayer. And if I don't make for time for prayer, that would be spiritual sloth, okay? And then last, it mentions hatred of God. All right, that's unusual. Most of us are not going to go to confession. I've never had to confess in hatred of God. But um, that can happen, right? And it happens when one sees him. So Satan has that, right? But the, it's the others that we have to worry about. Questions on, on those things? So adore your God, worship him alone, um, to see him as the one source of all good. Right? To pray to him and to see him as the one. All right, so this might raise the question about. Um, so all prayer is ultimately directed to God. That doesn't mean that we can't um, pray to Mary or saints, but they're not the last stop, right? Every praying to a saint or praying to Mary is speaking with a brother or sister. That's the way to think of it, so that we can come closer to God. Right? So God, in this sense, is the one alone to whom all prayer is ultimately directed and all worship directed. To offer sacrifice, right? So sacrifice is given only to God. And sacrifice is above all the mass, we'll talk about it later, but it would be offering our life as a kind of sacrifice, our work, our difficulties, our trials. And to unite them all to Christ's sacrifice, to the Mass, directed to the Father. Right? To keep promises and vows made to him. And that would go back to the question we were talking about before. If I've been baptized and committed myself to him, I want to make sure I keep that um, promise. Okay. Um, So every person has the duty to give worship to God and therefore the right to do it. Precisely because of the first commandment, um, there's a right to religious liberty. And that's because there's a duty 
to religious worship. Rights and duties go together. And in some way, the duty is the foundation of the right. God made us for himself, and so he's made us with a duty to seek him and to love him above all things and to worship him. And therefore, a society needs to respect in its members and its citizens that right to worship him according to their conscience. Even if, let's say, they think that true religion is something totally different. They still have that right because they still have the duty to worship him insofar as their conscience um, tells us what is the way he wants to be worshipped. Right? And so every rightly ordered society needs to provide religious liberty for all religions, even though right, we're claiming that the Catholic religion is the true religion um, founded by God, made man. Questions on that? Now, this, in most of human history, this was never the case, right? Societies didn't give religious liberty. Think of the time after the Reformation of religious wars. Um, and so this has been, a, a, we could say, a progress in modernity of recognizing, but it's not, Soviet Union did not have, and there are huge parts of the world in which religious liberty isn't um, uh, <clears throat> recognized, much of the Islamic world. Okay, I want to get to the second and third commandment. Um, I think we've got the main things here. Yeah. So what is forbidden? Um, polytheism, idolatry, superstition. Ah, say something about superstition. Superstition is a kind of excess. Superstition is um, thinking that I must or can't do something that God hasn't actually commanded or, um, or prohibited. Right? So it's basically making up obligations that don't come from God. Or giving to someone other than God um, an importance. So if I go to um, someone to tell me the future, or if I read a, um, my horoscope thinking that it's actually going to tell me something about the future or a Chinese fortune cookie, um, that would be superstition, right? Because only God knows the future, and the fortune cooker writer doesn't know that, nor the horoscope writer or, or the palm reader. Right? And it would, but it's worse than simply um, foolishness because it's giving to them, especially something like a, um, a palm reader, it's giving them as if they had a power that only God has, and therefore it would be taking away from the dignity proper to God. Right? And so you don't want to do that. So any use of magic um, divination, etc., um, is, is gravely contrary to the first commandment and has terrible consequences because de demons do exist. And once you start to talk to them, um, they can get a hold on us. Right? And so to have nothing to do with anything demonic or um, the spirit world. Okay, I'm going to leave those others. So irreligion simply not... It, religious indifferentism, um, agnosticism more common, um, just simply being not sure, right? But it's like what we said, a deliberate doubt. So what about images? Um, Israelites were commanded not to make images in the sense of idolatrous worship. In other words, not to make an image of Baal. But to have an image like this is not idolatry, right? But it's opposite. Right, so the, the not to make graven images was a commandment not to worship a, um, 
one of the many gods of the ancient world that would have had a cult through some kind of visible statue or, or um, painting. But this in no way means, does not mean that we can't have sacred images. Right? Sacred images are very good because they help us to pray to the true God. Questions on that? And likewise, it, it, there's no problem with having images of Our Lady and the saints. It's a great thing to have them in our house, right? Because we're all part of a larger church, right? The church on earth isn't isolated from the church in heaven. And so to have pictures of Mary and the saints is a good thing. All right. To respect the holiness of the name of God, I'm running out of time. Let me just do quickly the second and third commandments. Um, so basically the second commandment is commanding respect for God and his honor. And therefore I don't want to, so on the negative side, I don't want to use his name in vain. And on the positive side, I want to honor him, praise him, and glorify him. So it's in the Our Father, really the first petition. And hallowed be thy name, that your name be glorified and not and dragged in the mud. Right, so blasphemy is using God's name in improper ways. Right, and so that would be most commonly curses, and sometimes that's not fully voluntary. Right, so that's not a grave sin if it's not fully voluntary. I don't have to see as a mortal sin if I took the Lord's name in vain as, um, without deliberating. I should try and get rid of the habit, but it, um, in order to be mortal sin, it has to have the three um, conditions. Right? But more importantly, it's having respect for the things of God and, and God. And we might have to start with this next time, but very briefly, the third commandment um, is to keep the Lord's name. We were explaining this briefly in um, the first precept of the church. Right? So the first precept of the church has to do with how to observe the third commandment today. So Christians observe the third commandment differently than Jews. Jews observed it on the Sabbath, going to the synagogue, and Christians observe it on the Lord's Day. And the reason is simple. It's because Jesus chose to rise not on the Sabbath, which is day of rest. He rested on the Sabbath. But he chose to rise on the first day of the Jewish week to indicate a new beginning, a new foundation, a new covenant. And so um, Sunday is actually like our Monday in the Jewish week. And so Jesus made a change of the day in which we observe the third commandment. And we observe it above all by um, joining ourselves to Christ's sacrifice, and that is going to Mass. And then, in a secondary way, not doing what's contrary to the spirit of the Lord's day, and that would be unnecessary work. But that's a prudential question that each person, just like supporting the church, that each person has to determine themselves. Right? In other words, what's unnecessary work for me um, if I, my employer requires me to work on Sunday? Um, that would not be a grave sin. Right? If I have to work on Sunday and I work on Sunday, um, and then depending on what kind of work it is, um, church work is always a good thing on Sunday. Charitable work is always a good thing on Sunday. And anything that brings together family and friends is a good thing on Sunday. In other words, it's a day to celebrate God, family, community, and and all the works of charity. And that's why I like to do um, catechesis, RCA on Sunday. Well, it's the best day to do RCA. And so for me, this isn't work, but um, I'm sure everybody has to see that for themselves. Questions on that? Bring questions, and we can start with that next time. And, um, and we'll leave it here. Did you have anything that somebody sent in?
Oh, they wanted to know more about why we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. Yeah, it's because of the resurrection and to, to be a sign of a new covenant and a new creation. Right? Christ rose sanctifying, um, <clears throat> yeah, sanctifying the new creation with his risen body. And we want to join into that joy. All right, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of your law. We ask for your grace to put it in practice through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you. Thanks for braving the cold.